0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in sport, society, and culture. For this episode, we are discussing cricket in India and around the world. My guest is Samir Chopra. Associate Professor of Philosophy at Brooklyn College, and a regular blogger for ESPN Crick Info. Samir writes on a wide range of topics law and philosophy, ethics and technology, even the military history of contemporary South Asia. But his lifelong love is cricket, from his early days of playing in the neighborhood parks of Delhi. Today, Samir writes about cricket with the unique perspective of someone who has been steeped in the sport since childhood, who has the analytic approach of an academic philosopher, and who has come to learn and appreciate the sports of his adopted country. This approach is evident in Samir's book, Brave New Pitch, The Evolution of Modern Cricket, published at the end of 2012 by Harper Collins. Samir has a great love for the nuances of cricket, and he expresses that well in our interview. But he also assesses cricket within the broader landscape of world sport. He appreciates what makes cricket unique, but he also sees how cricket would be well-served by adopting practices from other sports. To start our interview, I asked Samir to discuss what he finds compelling in a philosophical sense about the sport of cricket so i came across a piece recently and i don't know if you've seen this in which uh john rawls made mm-hmm. the argument that baseball
1: mm-hmm. is the
0: best of all possible games so so to open i would invite you to to counter the eminent john rawls with an with an argument on behalf of cricket
1: uh, okay so that's a that, that's a very interesting claim to make i think well I'm not sure if I feel comfortable arguing that cricket is a superior game to any other game per se, but where I will say something in favor of cricket is that the open-endedness of the game, especially in the uh, five-day version of the game, is conducive to a very particular sort of um, sporting space, uh, you know, which allows fans' fantasies to run wild. Uh, You know, uh, innings in cricket are not limited by... Um, by time or by space. Um, you know, they they require 10 batsmen to be out, but that can take a very long time, which gives, um, you know, the average fan the chance to find within a particular game many different variations and many, many different evolutions of the game, which is, I think, what makes cricket into such an amazing game and, and makes it produce such a rich literature uh, that actually has a field day with this kind of imaginative space that goes with the game. And it's also a game that sets up uh, at its best moments, one player against the rest of the team. So you have these moments when individual players, while performing as part of a team, get these extended o- opportunities to, uh, you know, to align themselves in you know, in grand solitary fashion against the rest of the team. So it's it's both a team sport played in an extended space. It features ample opportunity for heroic individual achievement. Um, in its international version, it has a kind of a rich um, colonial history, which uh, makes it a great sort of spare, you know, space for, you know, for the for the resolution and development of uh, nationalist conflict and stories. So I think for all those reasons, uh, cricket's an amazing game, and I think um, to, you know to get back to the comparison with baseball, I think one thing that cricket does allow is that baseball is slightly binary in the sense of. Um, You know, you either have a ball or a strike or a pitch uh, or or a hit. And in cricket, you you can let a bat, uh, you can let a pitch become a ball because you choose not to play at it, or you don't think it's worth your time, or you think that you can hit a ball but not run on it. And I think that introduction of choice into batting uh, creates a certain amount of um, greatest, you know, a certain great space of possibilities in cricket that's not present in baseball.
0: And I, I'll follow up on that because I was I was also going to ask. So thinking about this uh, uh, this space for the fan, uh, the opportunity that the fan has uh, to use his imagination more more widely in in cricket, uh, I wanted to ask you what make what makes cricket compelling to you as a fan who is also a philosopher.
1: I think it's uh, I mean one grows up with cricket, so I think what happens is that. Very early on, your sense of what is adventurous, what is beautiful, what is uh, what is exciting, what represents high drama for you gets tied up very quickly with things that are cricketing. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of a major sporting event. Uh, for me, the paradigm major sporting event is always an important cricketing event. You know, other sports events are important, but they don't seem quite as important. So, you know... A Wimbledon final is a Wimbledon final, but it doesn't feel like, you know, an in India versus Pakistan, one day international in front of a huge stadium. Or, you know, a World Cup final in cricket is a different kind of event than it is from other World Cup events in you know, other games. So part of it is that you grew up with the game and your sort of childhood imagination gets locked up with these images and sounds of the game. Uh, but when you grow older, you realize other dimensions of the game, which, you know, would appeal to your sense of the adult, uh, the fact that you are witnessing a very old activity given a new spin by modern players, um, that you can see it in, um, you know, in a way that wasn't possible before. You can see it on modern television in sort of high quality video, which gives you access to uh, the game's beauty in a way that wasn't possible before you think about the contrast between the between the televised game and the game as it is played on the field and that kind of makes you think about it you know from the perspective of philosopher of you know the difference between the visual representation of a game and our and our personal appreciation of the game you know you think about the politics of the game about how all these different countries with different political backgrounds and different social histories have attempted to use the cricket field as a way of either finding out something about their national character or, in fact, establishing something about their national character or trying to make a statement about their nations on the field. And and every cricketing nation does it differently, which once again makes the cricket field a kind of a fascinating venue for, you know, someone who might be interested in political philosophy or history. And, you know, the game's... Uh, the, the game's physical aspects are fascinating, of course. When you pay more attention to the game, you come to realize just how difficult it is to play it. Um, if you play it, you realize how difficult it is to actually bowl a ball on length and to bowl it straight. Or when you hit the ball, to prevent the ball from going up in the air is a real art, which not every batsman has and which not every cricketer manages to master. So something about growing up and, and then coming to understand how difficult the game is also... Um, Helps you think about how human beings master it and master its its sort of physical and mental demands, yeah. and all of these make it you know as a result very fascinating for um you know for the academic philosopher and for the amateur philosopher.
0: Well, Samir, let's turn to uh, turn to the book, and I'll ask you about uh, the starting point for mm-hmm. your book and the starting point really for a lot of other contemporary writers about cricket. And this is the view that the sport is in something of a of a crisis, or as you say. Uh, a state of ferment. So, how would you characterize this this current uh, crisis or period of tumult that cricket is facing?
1: The way I describe the crisis is that we have we're at a moment in cricket when two very established notions about cricket are fundamentally under challenge. One is that the primary unit of cricketing competition is the Test match, and the second is that this test match is to be played between nations and not between clubs and the reason for that is that um, we now have an entry on the cricketing scene the indian premier league which pays a lot of money to not play test cricket and to not play test cricket for your country so with one stroke it has sort of upended uh, the proverbial apple cart because there's a lot of money available And that money is not meant for playing test matches, which have been the primary contest in cricket thus far. And they're not meant for playing for your country, but they're meant for playing, uh, but that money is meant for playing for your franchise. So what this does effectively is that, um, A, it gives spectators all over the world a chance to say something like, I would rather not watch test cricket. I would rather watch T20 cricket. And it gives cricketers the chance to say, I'd rather not play for my country Um, and especially long five-day games when I could make much more money playing um, much less cricket um, in a much shorter season. So, you know, straight off the bat, you have more money, less time involved playing the game. Um, You know, it would, you know, it would change almost any domain's, um, you know, uh, economy. In a sense, the traditional structures of cricket – Seem threatened, and especially they seem threatened because this new league is not just any league. It's a league that is supported by the richest cricketing board in the world, which is the Board of Cricket Control in India. It's played in India, and most of the cricket fans' worlds, um, most of the world's cricket fans are in India. So if Indian cricket fans say that they prefer watching T20 cricket and that's where they want to spend their money and that's where advertisers of the game, Want to advertise their wares and that's where the sponsors want to spend their money then it seems like this new brand of cricket might starve all the other versions of cricket because you know the fans and and the and the television rights will no longer be there and it might starve the cricketing world of players because if the best players simply say they want to play the shorter form of cricket and not the longer form of cricket then we've got a player problem as well so this t20 threat has been around for a few years It's just become especially acute in the last five or six years because the Indian Board of Cricket Control has decided that it's going to support the game and it's going to start up a whole new league right smack bang in the middle of the international cricket season. And it's going to pay and it's going to open the game open to these um, to these corporate franchises to come in and own um, to own these teams and to bring in the world's best players to come and play for them.
0: So, following up on that, one of the uh, extreme scenarios you you bring out in the book is uh, that cricket in India would just become a, a league unto itself; that it would separate itself from international cricket, and it would be. Uh, I think you would, you raise the analogy in your book that it would be like American sports leagues, like uh, <laughs> like Major League Baseball. You know, we we're the biggest market. Yes, other countries play baseball, but you know, we don't really need you. So we're not going to send our players to the world baseball classic. Do you see that as, as a scenario that could, that could happen?
1: I threw it out as, uh, you know, this was suggested by another blogger and I threw it out as a kind of, um, possibility that, you know, think about what this could look like in the Indian context, mm-hmm. because, you know, don't dismiss it out of hand just because it's, it's not it's not happening in cricket because it's something that happens in other sports i think i think like that was by far the most important point for me was to point out to people that what is being suggested is not wacky when it comes to other sports it just sounds strange because it's not happened in cricket but you know basketball is even a better example mm-hmm. that we have basketball in the olympics we have a world cup in basketball we have basketball clubs all over the world it's an international sport But the NBA is not an American league. The NBA is an international league. Anybody can come and play in the NBA. And the world's best players play in the NBA. And that's just it. And it's where the most money is. And it's where the most prestigious basketball is played. So it's entirely possible that something like that could develop. It's just, um, it's, it's just a question of whether cricket fans the world over will turn to that competition as being the place where they see the best cricket or whether they'll see better, better cricket played elsewhere. So for example, if there was better basketball being played in the Olympics, then the NBA would not have the status that it does because fans would just say, look, you know, the NBA is great, but you know, when, when the best basketball comes around, you know, we'll turn to the Olympics, but that's not true. The best basketball is in the NBA. So the best players want to come and play out here. And that's why there is the most money in the league. Um, in cricket, I think part of the problem is that the part of the problem or part of the history of the game is that the international game is much more entrenched than than the franchise versions are. so the question is whether uh, a franchise version like that in cricket will ever appeal to players or to fans for providing them the most dramatic stage on which to show off their game and where the best cricket would be played now of course. Nowadays, we tend to say that the international game has the best cricket, but it might be that over a period of time, as the best players slowly move to franchise cricket, it might become that the best cricket is played in, in franchise cricket, that in fact, um, that we see better quality in these leagues than we see in international five-day games, just because the best players are not playing the international five-day game anymore.
0: And to follow up on that, you, you see some benefit in not only... Um, the IPL but uh, international cricket moving more in this direction of a franchise model of organization in fact that you write at one point that you'd like to see something similar to the Red Sox Yankees rivalry uh, emerging in international cricket so what benefit does the franchise model have for world cricket?
1: I once again I considered this as a possibility without you know necessarily committing myself to whether this would be a good thing or not but I but I kind of wanted to think about what its what its upside was. And there were a couple of upsides. One was, you know, cricket does have a lot of nationalist bickering amongst mm-hmm. its fans and, and it's, its fans and its organizers. And there's a lot of suspicion often in the way that the game is run, that the game is not being run for the benefit of the game, but it's being run for the benefit of the national boards. And the national boards tend to emphasize their country's fortunes as opposed to the game's fortunes. So, you know, uh, the World Cup could be run in a particular way, but we're not going to let the game be run in that particular way because letting the game being run in that way would be would be conducive to our board's fortunes, not not so much what the global health of the game would be. So one 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 worry was whether the way that the game is run now, organized along the national level, is causing decisions to be taken at the administrative level that are not harmful, that that are not necessarily good for the game strategically. But which short-term suit particular national interests tactically, so the so the game is suffering as a result, right? Um, the other thing, of course, is this notion that I mentioned before that you know nationalist bickering in a sport tends to corrode some of the discourse surrounding the sport, and perhaps it might be better if you know rivalries in cricket were club-based rather than nation-based. I mean, you know, you would, you know, if if you got mixed up in one of these you know fans that debates. Uh, you know, debates that fans have sometimes online. You'd be, you know, amazed at the kind of invective that's thrown around, um, and that's you know largely because people, you know, there's a lot of bad faith accusations when there's national interests involved.
0: And I'll jump in. One of the points you make in the book is that uh, uh, Australian-Indian relations and mutual understanding have not actually been improved by by cricket over the years. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, it's, uh, it's not something that's helped us. Rather, it's become just another domain where there's a lot of, you know, silly accusations thrown back and forth. Um, and I think uh, the other, I think other very significant factor for me is that it would help cricket players as employees that can then market their wares in a kind of labor market that's not defined once again by national boundaries, right? So cricket is organized by the nation. So there is a national board organizer, And I play cricket in one country. Now I want to go play cricket in another country. So I've got to get visas, passports, working papers, working permits. Uh, You know, you have to do these for regular jobs as well. But it's almost as if in other professions, we've come to understand workers in those fields as having the freedom to move between different nations without these kinds of onerous restrictions that are now placed on cricketing professionals. So, for example, you know, I, I... I give that example of Shai the Freedy, the Pakistani player who had a dispute with his national board. And when he wanted to play cricket elsewhere, he had to get a national, he had to get a no objection certificate signed by his board, right? So this is almost collusion between employers to prevent the free floors of employees uh, across national boundaries. This is a kind of collusion in the labor market that would not be tolerated in other professions, but it's tolerated in cricket because national boards run the game, right? So I... So I wanted to also make the case that running the game along franchise lines might, in fact, um, lead to a certain clearing up of the labor market for players, so that they might be able to hawk their skills in a, in a more open market. So from these three perspectives, you know, kind of reducing the pernicious impact of nationalism, uh, making it players, making it possible for players to become more unionized, to enjoy true free agency, to move between labor markets, um, and thirdly. Um, you know, allowing the game perhaps to flourish in parts of the world where there might not be enough players to, you know, to make up a full national team or to get a whole national board organized. But those players might still be useful to franchises elsewhere. And and then their success in these franchises could then have a kind of a uh, a positive effect on the game locally.
0: So you talked about the uh, the problems that players have. Uh, with their with their national boards, I want to ask: Do do fans as well have a problem with seeing players now with the emergence of the IPL? Uh, do fans have a problem in seeing players as professionals?
1: I think this is a this is an old problem in cricket that f- cricket fans have grown up thinking of players as being patriots first. Mm-hmm. You know, they play for countries, they play for national duty, they play for national pride. And, you know, that is what should motivate them. And one of my pleas in this book to other cricket fans is that they view players as professionals first, people who have a skill and who are trying to make a living for themselves and who might therefore have priorities that are different from the ones that national board managers or fans might. Uh, You know, this is why I use the example of, you know, just an ordinary professional like myself, um, when I wanted to find work, I looked for work in my country. But when I didn't find it, I looked elsewhere. I applied for a visa. I came to the states. I live in the states. I now have an American passport. I travel back to India when I can. But I pay taxes in the U.S. I'm an American citizen. I've done the best I could for my family. I don't think anybody should excuse you know accuse me of being you know a traitor or a mercenary or uh, you know these are kind of accusations that are. Uh, Tinted, you know, tainted with a certain sort of um, unquestioning acceptance of the notion of, you know, of nation and national duty, and you know that's being where, you know, that's where our priority should lie. Um, but I think thinking about the game being organised along lines different from the previously understood national ones can be a very interesting way for us to think about how players might be treated, and I think fans should start to understand that what we call the national teams are just a bunch of outfits put together by some organizers who call themselves the National Board. I mean, you know, I mean, if you look at the US Olympic Association, who are they? They're just a bunch of guys that have formed something called the Olympic Association and they're and they're recognized as the National Olympic Association, right? Um, and then they get, you know, they get themselves registered as a nonprofit organization. But how's that different from any other group that wants to organize the game, you know, from some, you know, from some corporation that says, uh, you know, we'll organize a tournament here and we'll hire some players to play for us. Um, what matters is how the game is organized, how the game is uh, is understood, whether its essential values are preserved or not. And if the Board of Critical Control of India is going to, you know, organize the game in this commercial fashion anyway, then what's the difference between that and other corporate franchises? So I'd like sort of fans to think about these issues and not just, Issue these knee-jerk condemnations of players for looking out for better contracts for themselves when, you know, that's what fans would do if they had the option to make a better living for themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to ask about fans in the, in the IPL. And uh, you make a point in the book that for a cricket supporter, and you've referred to this already, for a cricket supporter, the pinnacle of their identity and their experience as a fan is cheering for the national team. In an international match, but now the the franchises in the IPL are seeking to claim the loyalties of fans, uh, yeah. while having really an international roster of players. And and unlike unlike the EPL, uh, the English Premier League, and the NBA, which you mentioned, which which started out with clubs with local fan bases and have since gained global backing, uh, the IPL really began as a global league. Yeah. A sport which places its greatest emphasis on on the international level, but it needs local support. So, how have these uh, IPL franchises been managing trying to trying to build local fan support?
1: This is a very interesting question because the way the IPL rosters are understood, they have four overseas players, and the remaining seven players have to be Indian players. But they are not very rigid. Residency rules. So, for example, um, the local team in, say, Mumbai, the remaining seven players are not necessarily Mumbai players. You know, uh, a few of them are Mumbai players, but then uh, the rest of the players have been purchased at this auction um, from a kind of a thick roster of Indian players. So, the development of local fan support is very interesting because these franchises are largely city based franchises, uh, which means that for them to build support from areas outside the city is quite hard. Um, Some of them are, uh, you know, one of them is region-based, like, you know, uh, the Kings 11 Punjab, but the rest of them are city-based franchises. So uh, building local support is a very, very interesting challenge for them. And I don't quite understand how they're doing it. Uh, The IPL is now six seasons old. Uh, It is a huge hit As far as television ratings are concerned, everybody tunes in in India to watch it. Um, It's played at the perfect time every evening, which is two evening games. So my friends in India tell me that um, in the evenings, you know, people come home and the game starts at 8 o'clock. People either go to bars after work or um, they come home and, you know, dinner's on or they drive to a friend's place and um, get a few drinks together. Um, And... Some cities are developing local uh, local followings like Mumbai and Calcutta and Bangalore are starting to identify quite strongly with the local teams. For other teams, it's it's um, it's taking a little longer. Uh, and I think the other thing that's not helping the IPL is that they don't have a clear understanding of player transfer rules. So, you know, fans identify with one set of players for two or three years, and then those players get transferred very quickly somewhere else. So you know there's no chance for fans to develop long standing allegiances with their players and i think the ipl needs to get a little bit clear on um what it can learn from other leagues on on player transfer rules so that in fact fans can develop certain kinds of resilient um relationships with their um with their local teams um other than that i'm i'm interested to see how in the next 2 or 3 years what they're going to emphasize about these um, franchises when the season is short, so short, the the season is only two months long. So the franchise doesn't have um, a great opportunity to stay on the fans minds all year long, or, you know, six months long in the way that some seasons can. And also they don't have a farm system. So right now, you know, there's just gigantic pool of players and then there's an auction, but there's no, uh, you know, there's no minor league teams that are producing, um, Players and then pushing them upwards. So there's not like a local movement of scouts going around and finding players, um, and as it, and you know, as it were, grooming talent locally. So I think the big the big question to see is whether the franchise's role will expand beyond the season, whether the season will expand, um, and how they will change player transfer rules so as to start allowing uh, certain kinds of local um, uh, local affections to be built and maintained.
0: At one point in the book, you you talk about that uh, uh, people in India take great pride in the IPL so that the success of the IPL feeds into something of a, I don't want to say a nationalist agenda, but but a measure of patriotism. But at the same time, you note that the IPL still provides fodder uh, for negative stereotypes of India in the English and Australian press. So can you talk about that?
1: Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, one thing that um, you know, one thing that was immediately visible to a lot of Indian fans and in the way that the IPL was responded to was that there was a lot of you know derision and mockery directed at the IPL uh, from the English and Australian press. You know, some of which was understandable, but some of which was just expressed in a tone that seemed to people to just be well, you know, this is just going to be a loud, flashy, noisy gala affair put on by all these nouveau-riche businessmen with poor taste. And, you know, we've been doing this for so long, and this just is in such appallingly bad taste, and, you know, this is bound to fail. And there was something a little bit snooty about it all. You know, understandable snobbery, some of it, but even then it seemed to some Indian fans a little bit over the top And revelatory of certain prejudices about whether, you know, you really thought, um, you know, these folks could pull something like this off. And, of course, conversely for the Indians, there was a huge amount of pride when, you know, when, in fact, the world's best players showed up to play in India, they all wanted Indian money. You know, Indians said, hey, look at this. Indian money is the same as other kinds of money. The world's best players will come and play for us if they if they make Indian money. Look at that! Uh, look at that! We got television rights that are worth uh, millions of dollars. Um, you know, Forbes is paying attention to us. The New York Times is paying attention to us. Wall Street Journal is talking about how quickly this league has become so big. Um, you know, people are talking about how its value is almost worth that, that much of the National Hockey League. You know, those you know there, there are big dollar amounts being thrown around, and people are talking about this league as if it was an entrant in the world's pantheon of sporting leagues. All, all of this was, you know, much occasion for Indian pride. And many Indians felt that, you know, this was an as much a symbol of Indian success as any of the other big Indian corporations or Indian authors or, you know, winning the Booker Prize or, you know, this was India on the world stage again. And these jealous, scarping English and Australian critics that seemed to be Complaining about all the negative effects this would have on Test cricket or on the traditional game of cricket, these folks are just complaining because you know when they had the chance to run the game, you know they did what they wanted with it, and now they just weren't willing to share the laurels, as it were. So this is some of the I think the dialectic that you know that confronted the game um, in the two sets of fans that kind of perceived and reacted to the to the IPL. And I think there was a there was a you know there, there were elements of truth in both perspectives.
0: Turning from T uh, twenty and the IPL, I want to ask a question about Test cricket. and uh, uh-huh. And you write in in your introduction uh, that Test cricket does need to be preserved, and and the term you use is that Test cricket needs um, your line is respectful but concrete safeguards. Yes, and uh, so I'll ask you why why does this traditional and and really unusual game, in terms of the contemporary sports entertainment landscape, why why does this need to be protected and preserved?
1: One part of it is that, um, you know, just because it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Um, we owe it the same reverence that at the risk of sounding fancy that we owe to any great work of art, that it's beautiful and it deserves preservation. Um, it's also, it also deserves preservation because it's unique. Uh, you know, uh, Test cricket is so different from other kinds of sports that sometimes when I'm explaining it to other sports fans, I'm struck by the strangeness of it all. And I think, like, it's only survived because it came about at a particular place and particular time and somehow managed to avoid attention for so long, you know, that if some modern manager had been in charge of the game, they would have just shut it down a long time ago.
0: I've heard the uh, same. I've heard the same said about baseball, though.
1: Yes, and it's and it's precisely for that uh, that you know, it, it's it's precisely for that reason. It's beautiful. It's unique. It's also a form of gratitude because I think what Test cricket did was because it was unique, it created a certain species of fan. It said created a certain certain species of cricketing literature of cricketing understanding that generated a certain kind of fanhood, which. Infects those who come into contact with it. So, for example, you know, it is the it is the intensity of the Test cricket fan that makes other non-fans pay attention to the game and then possibly get roped in, right? Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it's almost as if Test cricket's intensity is what has underwritten these other forms of the game and made it possible for them to uh, you know to enjoy the prosperity that they have. It's because cricket fans are so passionate that they're willing to look at other forms of the game and to and to find enjoyment within them, so I think for all those reasons, I would like to think that we, or you know, we. When I say we, I mean the cricket community, as as a form of aesthetic appre- appreciation, as a form of historical appreciation and acknowledgement, and as a form of gratitude, um, should continue to preserve and defend Test cricket.
0: Mm-hmm. Samir, so, you have a number of uh, really eloquent passages throughout the book uh, I really appreciated uh, the writing in the book and and there's one passage in particular you have something of a, a lament uh, uh-huh. in, in the way the game has has changed in terms of how it's played and particularly the emphasis uh, in T20 on batting over bowling mm-hmm. uh, but also you talk about the, the proficiency of the athlete and, and how that a changes uh, has changed the game so I want to ask if you'd please uh, read that passage for us
1: okay great Uh, The dullness of all batting, all the time, is brought out best by highlight reels of beginnings. For these testimonials to batting feasts are infected by a peculiar boredom. It is essential cricket enter the enjoyment of a stroke that the fans' thoughts never stray too far from the cricketing version of death. Cricket's terrible beauty is that it promises swift and surefire extinction to those that transgress even momentarily. To let this fear infect one's perception of a batsman's endeavours is to sharpen one's appreciation of the skills and display. To simply watch runs piled on introduces a form of deadening ennui instead. While there is a joy in watching mastery, in watching the demonstration of a particular kind of arrogance and confidence by an actor whose march seems unstoppable, it still must happen within a competitive context.
0: And I want to ask you as, as a philosopher and a fan, and I, and I know that you're a fan of, of other sports, to elaborate on this. Because it, it seems to me that this is common in sports today, that the athletes have become so proficient. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I think of, for instance, uh, Barcelona a couple of years ago when, when they were at the height of their powers. Uh-huh. Or, or even watching LeBron, that, that there is an element of boredom.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what's really what I was trying to get at in this passage, and I'm very fascinated by the fact that you picked this passage, is that, you know, cricket is a bit of a batsman dominated sport. And um, it tends to be a sport where people often pay more attention to the runs made and the batting made. And, you know, uh, you know, just like in baseball, you know, the smart or the perceptive cricket fan is uh, baseball fan is fond of saying, yeah, you know. Uh, runs big deal, you know, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's pitchers that win games or um, watching a high scoring game is not as much fun as watching a game in which pitchers got to do well. Right. And I think that's partly a play out here is that if you just see a lot of runs made, then it's not as interesting as those runs made in a situation where in fact they are really earned and scrapped for because they're being made against a bowling attack that is edgy, that is competitive, that is threatening. Um, And of course, what I was trying to say out here is that what makes batting fun or watching batting fun is that you know in cricket, if you make one mistake, you're out, you're done, you go home for the day. Uh, That's what makes batting quite so fascinating to watch because you know that the slightest mistake can get your hero out and send him back to the pavilion. But of course, for that mistake to be made, there must be a chance for it to happen. Uh, You know, the bowlers must be... Placing pressure on him, uh, you know, the pitch must be such that it's likely to, you know, cause him to hurry up or to play a false stroke. If all the conditions are in favor of the batsman, then it's not going to be very interesting to watch because then the runs being made are sort of devalued in a way. And one of the problems that is happening in cricket is not just that the players are becoming better. It's that the players are becoming better. They're they're using heavier bats. They're bowling on pitches that or, or they're batting on pitches that are flatter which means that the bowlers are handicapped because they don't get as much pitch or pace of the pitch. So what this is resulting in is that runs are being made very easily and we're not getting as many results as possible, uh, which is why, of course, many people will not like test cricket because they will think, well, you know, in test cricket, we don't get results, but in the shorter versions of the game we get results. So I think in this paragraph, I'm trying to make a plea for greater balance between bat and ball not just so that we can get more results but that we can get more interesting and more beautiful cricket to look at because uh batting must be dangerous if batting isn't dangerous then the making of runs is easy and you know no one wants to see runs being made you know in easy non competitive contexts
0: i want to ask about uh, something that you write about quite a bit and that is the uh, the fan in diaspora mm-hmm. and uh, i'll a- i'll ask you uh, what part does cricket play in shaping your identity as as an indian in america and and what part do you play as a fan in diaspora in global cricket
1: um, so for me it's uh, you know a couple of very straightforward roles it lets me stay in touch with a childhood passion uh i would really feel like something terrible was you know missing in my life uh, or something terrible had happened if i didn't have access to cricket um, you know, it's a way of staying in touch with old memories, an old component of oneself, even though as the years go by, it becomes more and more distant from me in some ways. Uh, but, it, but it's one way of staying in touch. Um, when I first came to the States, it was also a way of asserting national pride in some ways. Um, you know, I hadn't adjusted to my new home. I hadn't left my old uh, belongings, my old habitation then, uh, you know, taking part or or watching Indian games was a way of connecting with people back home as well. Um, uh, You know, the World Cups were always great to watch for that reason because you felt like you were connected to your Indian friends no matter where they were, whether they were in India or in the States or elsewhere. Um, And I think for, you know, as I write about that aspect in my book, um, for Indian fans the world over, the Indian team kind of represents a kind of traveling circus of players who give them a chance to show off in their in their um, in their adopted countries? And I think the other component of being a fan of the diaspora is that now we even have a financial role to play. Uh, Indian fans in the US diaspora pay a lot of attention to cricket. They travel to watch cricket. They spend money on cricket. Um, you know, fans from the US go to the West Indies to watch cricket all the time. They go to England. Um, They buy a lot of internet stream packages. So we have a certain economic role to play in the game. And, uh, you know, when YouTube was used to stream the IPL live, one of the reasons that that was done was because it was recognized that there was a large Indian population the world over that wanted to watch um, live streaming of the game. So in a way, uh, the diaspora influences the game's development because... There are Indian players who play in cricket leagues worldwide who then land up inspiring uh, development of the game. This is whether the Indian players, Pakistani players, Sri Lankan players, West Indian players. So now we have big leagues in Brooklyn and California and uh, North Carolina um, and Texas, even. So the game can develop because of the diasporic fan. And and I think that's why the ICC needs to pay attention to the diasporic fan to make sure that we can watch cricket. Um, you know, so all these stupid restrictions on, um, you know, on internet access to cricket are really counterproductive for the ICC. I mean, they, you know, they should be telling their media rights people to not, um, you know, to not prosecute people on YouTube who want to put up, put up cricket videos because this is actually helping them. So... Uh so anyway I think for the for the diasporic fan cricket serves as a kind of a outlet for nationalist sentiment but I think overall the diasporic fans attention to the game is I think has a s- very significant role to play in the development of the game worldwide.
0: And following up on your mention of uh leagues in Brooklyn and Texas and throughout the United States uh your your last chapter of your book has the title O oh say can you see so the the first line of the American national anthem do you see do you see a future for cricket in America, other than something that uh, immigrants play and in, in neighborhoods in New York City, do you see it having larger, larger attraction in this country?
1: You know, it's, it's a very hard question to answer because the game has been so incompetently managed in the U.S. So, in fact, I don't think cricket will ever become, you know, anything like the Big Four. Mm-hmm. I think those games are too entrenched. They take up too much American attention. But, you know, cricket doesn't have to become as big as the Big Four to to have a sizable f- and significant footprint. It just needs to take hold in very small American markets, and it would already be doing really well. Um, so, for instance, if um, players who grow up playing in American contexts can get a chance playing at some of these T20 leagues, you know, just imagine one American player, Getting a money contract to play in the Indian Premier League, you know because he plays in one of these smaller versions of the game um the the knockoff effect that could have on other players playing out here would be immense you know they would think that hey it's you know it's possible for someone to make a living playing cricket and and that might just spark a greater presence of the game at the school level college level, and you know even if it lands up just being played in large immigrant enclaves that you know, that might be all the presence that, uh, you know, that cricket requires. Big American cities with big American cricket leagues. Uh, and I, like once again, like I said, I don't mean like uh, cricket leagues like the NBA or anything like that. That's, you know, that even hasn't happened for soccer. But just something smaller just so that people might consider playing it professionally. You know, I mean, even a professional league is a long way, is a long way away. But I think if anything is going to happen, it's going to happen because of the T20 leagues and not because of best cricket.
0: So Samir, to close, I'll ask, what are you working on now? You've written about, uh, you've written on philosophy, uh, you've written on history, you've written on cricket. Uh, what's what's your next project?
1: Well, I am finishing up a book now, which is a continuation of my uh, military aviation uh, interests. Um, that should be out later this year. Uh, but I've got a long-term academic project that I've been working on now for three or four more years, uh, three for more, three four years, and which like looks likely to continue for another three or four years. Um, which is um, uh, it's kind of a intersection of legal theory and philosophy, um, looking at some of the ways in which um, in which law and philosophy can influence each other. I have also plans to turn some of my cricket blog. Uh, posts over at ESPN Crick Info into a collection of essays. I, I think mm-hmm. of those blog posts as being you know pretty short, mm-hmm. scratches on the surface, and I want to turn them into longer essays. And I also have a collection of uh, memoirs on cricket, um, uh, which I wrote a few years ago, and which I'm actively looking for a public you know for a for a publisher for. Um, and I'm you know in the process of shopping that these days, and I'm looking out for somebody to pick it up. Uh, looking for a publisher to pick it up. So uh, yeah, lots of writing to keep me busy. The last few months, I've been a complete slacker. I I don't think I've done an hour of honest work, (laughs) um, you know, with my baby around, but you know, that's fine. I I guess these breaks and breaks and work have to come sometime together.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Samir Chopra about his book, Brave New Pitch, The Evolution of Modern Cricket, published in 2012 by HarperCollins. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on topics from food to philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.